0: You're welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. On today's show, I'm going to be joined by more international and Irish experts who drive and analyse our world of business and politics. Well, unfortunate scenes this week as climate chaos reached the thresholds of thousands and thousands of homes across the EU and the UK. For their part, the European Commission set out their emergency plans to deal with what is now a full-blown energy crisis. So we'll be discussing the dichotomy of trying to deal with the full effects of climate change in a global energy world war with Professor Michael Grubbs from ULC in London. And have you ever thought about getting in on crypto? The online currency is a very risky business, but lucky for us, we'll have Sean Keyes here from The Currency here to tell us all about it and why investing in it is not exactly for the faint-hearted. And finally, the UK government wasn't the only one facing political turmoil this week. Italy's Prime Minister Mario Draghi resigned and threw Italy into political chaos. Could it have knock-on effects for the European bloc as the European Central Bank this week raised interest rates by half of 1%. The Prime Minister has been a very stabilising presence in not only Italy but across Europe so we'll be analysing who's to blame for the resignation with Hugo McCafferty Irish journalist who's based in Italy. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at StockNT. But first up today We're talking about money, money, money. We're talking Money has already evolved from coins to notes, entries on balance sheets and bytes on computers. So how should it evolve in the digital age? Well, it's cryptocurrencies, of course. And here to tell us all about it is Sean Keyes from The Currency. Sean, you're very welcome to Taking Stock. Hi. Now, on the off chance that not everybody is as alert to cryptocurrencies as you and I, can you just talk us through what cryptocurrency actually is?
2: Cryptocurrencies are a form of um, digital, digital currency they exist uh, on online. Um, what makes them interesting and unique is sort of uh, something about their architecture, which is that in in any other kind of a system, uh, everything all, all transactions are cleared at the center. Mm. You know, at like at, at at a at a bank or a government or some kind of source of authority that says, yeah, this is that this transaction has happened and, and it's legit. And what makes cryptos unique is that there is no center. They're sort of like, if you can visualize them as like a web or a net where every, all of the different points on the net kind of interact with each other and they all collectively verify all, the, all of the transactions. So it's it's, it's it's decentralized. And what that means is nobody controls it when then what that means is they can be used for, well, they can be used for all sorts of things, but they're, they're basically out of the reach of, of governments and, 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 and large uh, you know, financial institutions.
0: So they're not attached to any particular currency. Um, and what then is the value in somebody getting involved in a cryptocurrency? Is it the same principle of investment where your risk equals the reward that you might get?
2: Uh, not really. I mean, like, I mean, you know, if you look at it, you look at a chart of a cryptocurrency on a computer screen, and it looks an awful lot like the chart of, you know, a stock or any other currency. So superficially, you'd say, yeah, you know, they're similar. And also, if you look at that one of those crypto charts, they mm-hmm. will probably show that the thing has gone up a lot over the long term. So yeah, you know, in a certain sense, it is an investment, but it doesn't really fit in the paradigm of the way we understand. All other investments, other all other investments are uh, well. They, they're kind of they're, they've been well studied and they've kind of they comport to certain rules and they're sort of um, yeah they're 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 quite uh, well they're quite well understood. Whereas cryptos are kind of out on their own. Uh, they they don't behave like all these other assets that we understand quite well. They bounce around a lot. They do go up quite quickly. But they go down quite quickly too, and they sort of play by their own rules. If that makes sense,
0: yeah. And um, where are they at at the moment um, in their cycle?
2: The cycle is interesting. I mean, it's it's kind of a hard one to do without a graph, but I'll, I'll do my best. Like, so cryptos. They, they if you if you take Bitcoin as sort of the bellwether one, mm. and they, I mean that's pretty fair. The rest of them kind of tend to, to price themselves relative to Bitcoin. So just focus on Bitcoin and. If what it does, Bitcoin has been through, I think, like four major booms and busts. You know, and it started at essentially essentially zero. Like started at like you know essentially like one cent or something like that. You know, and it went up like ten thousand percent to the point where it was worth like you know ten dollars or a hundred dollars or something like that. Then it had its first crash, and the people who invested at the top of that boom lost like seventy percent of their money but then it just kept doing that. Hmm. Um, so it sort of, it had one peak at like $10 and another peak at like 12, 1200 and another one at uh, what was the previous one? It was like sort of like 6,000. So the most recent peak was at 60,000 anyway. That's the one that we're just gone past. And it was in, that was last November. It has since lost, I think I'm right in saying like 60% of its value. Um, it's down at around 20,000 now. So yeah, that's where we are. It's, in the long run it has gone up a lot but it's kind of gone through these cycles of uh, of peaks and troughs and we're we're in a trough now and you know, as ever with financial markets, you don't know how, the, how deep the drop is going to be in on, with, with without hindsight.
0: Yeah, Bitcoin's the one that most people will be familiar with. It has those kind of flurries, uh, you know, that go go up and down, and, and people kind of gauge the entire um, uh, cryptocurrency based on Bitcoin. And is that reflective of what's happening in the cryptocurrency market at the moment? And um, is it all having those cycles?
2: yes it is i mean so so bitcoin was the original uh, and it's sort of yeah as i said as i said before everything else is kind of price re- relative to it but like the cryptocurrency world is is has kind of grown to be much bigger than bitcoin i mean uh, i would i don't have the, have the fingers at my fingertips but i would guess that like the value of all bitcoin is something like a third or something mm. of the value of all cryptocurrencies so that's there's a whole other two-thirds of various other currencies out there,
0: and, and the momentum in cryptocurrencies is particularly important, isn't it?
2: Yeah, well, momentum—momentum momentum is like it's a sort of a scientific-sounding term that um, that academics use for describing this sort of. It's basically like unexplained. Like it, so what what it is is fin- finance professors are looking at the way these these assets behave, and they've got like they've they spend a long time working out like kind of logical theories that make sense, but then there's like a certain leftover behavior of, of stocks and assets, which they can't really make sense with logical mm. theories. And that's kind of what momentum is. Momentum is just like um, the, 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 being... the, the
0: factor that you can't quantify and there's not a lot of explanation for it.
2: Yeah, it's, it's, it's just a tendency of stocks to go up, to kind of go up more than they should, to kind of keep going up... Uh, going up sequentially and and then kind of going down sequentially Uh, and there isn't really any kind of rational basis for it that can be that's understood but it is a a, a fact that if if a stock or a crypto has been going up for ages it will continue to go up and likewise if it's been going down for ages it will continue to go down and so it's when it comes to something like stocks it's sort of an interesting little sideshow that sort of explains part of what's going on but when it comes to crypto it really is the whole story because there aren't there aren't the other kind of more fundamental theories around risk and reward and all of that logical stuff don't really fit at all so you're just left with the momentum
0: it sounds like a very fragmented monetary system
2: it is well that's i mean for 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 crypto people that they would say that's the whole appeal of this you know it's the whole the the, the legend and the lore of crypto is that it's independent all these independent people and you know visionaries and, and technologists kind of building a monetary system from the ground up without getting without getting you know permission from the government or from anybody else and uh, they like they like it that way um, But what's, I mean,
0: the, what's the downside of that then
2: um well the <laughs> the downside of it is i mean what well, one downside of it is is that it it's, it gets used gets used for illicit transactions, so mm. you know if you're selling buying and selling stuff that you shouldn't you shouldn't be buying and selling or if you're holding the hse to ransom you're going to use crypto for it because for the, for the reasons i've described um another one maybe this see in the in the most recent cycle things have changed a little bit um whereas previously we had like there was first there was just bitcoin that was like the whole new idea then over in the coming in the following sort of years they kind of there's a proliferation of other coins and in the most recent cycle the new thing is that the whole sort of financial kind of a crypto financial industry has sort of been built on top of these coins so they've there's been crypto banks and crypto hedge funds and all sorts of and crypto yield farms which are sort of like crypto uh like dividend stocks i suppose but anyway there's a whole sort of incredibly and increasingly complex financial system which has been built on top of this fragmented industry and that's sort of, that's interesting and, and, and kind of what depends on your perspective, but it's, but it's an unfortunate thing to observe now that like, you know, you basically have all these crypto banks are falling apart. You know, the, all, the whole financial system they built on top of it is falling apart now that the coins are going down.
0: And Sean, like, is there a regulatory structure around these or the governance issues? How, how, is, that, um, how is that monitored or how, how does that work?
2: Well, um, well, you know, a, a certain amount of it is like immune from regulation, which is you know the core blockchain crypto, mm-hmm. uh, you know, of, of, of these of these of these coins. But then, as I said, there's more now to the crypto world than just you know, let's say, bitcoins or Ethereum. There is all these other stuff that's been built on top of it. There's their lenders and the hedge funds and the yield farms and all of that, and and, and the exchanges. That and those are actually sort of in many cases traditional businesses that like that you'd recognize from any like any other they've got their headquarters they've got their legal department they have to comply with local laws i mean the biggest one in the world is probably coinbase that's here, and that's what which has an operation in dublin um so that's an example yeah and and uh, and so that, that's the, it's those uh, actors that the regulators would be targeting. So is it's a, in, in
0: individual country laws that apply to um, the the currency. there's no kind of overarching global one given that it's operating on the internet and that's a global environment.
2: Correct. Yeah, correct. So, I mean, the big players, I mean, like I know Singapore have have basically their their regulator has taken a a very hostile stance to the whole industry and decided it doesn't want it. The big player is obviously the U.S. Mm. and their SEC. And there's kind of been like a debate now for uh, it's been it's been going on for years now about like how, you know, do do they do, 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 do the U.S. does the U.S. want to sort of protect consumers mm. and basically clamp down hard on crypto or does it want to encourage innovation and basically take a light touch and so it, it's all bound up in like should is a crypto is it a commodity or is it a security and because they've got different regulatory regimes for each one but anyway the, the long and the short of it is that the us still hasn't figured out what it's going to do but i think that the the, the, the fit the feeling in the industry is that that tougher regulation is coming. They're starting from a very low base, so anything that, that does happen will be sort of layered on top of what they have. You
0: know, how many cryptocurrencies are there in existence?
2: Oh, I do not know. I mean, it, there's, it's, it's, there's. If you were to look at it, I, what I can say is, if you were to look at like a, a graph of the value of all these cryptos, it, it would be like it would be concentrated at the top. You mm. know, like I I would say, I'd say Bitcoin is has half of the value. Ethereum might have a you know a third of the value the next one has a quarter of the value i'd say that the top 10 amount account for you know 90% or something of the value of the of the whole system but then in terms of the actual number there's there's a long tail of i don't it's impossible to know Pro, almost certainly in the thousands or tens of thousands, because it's it's very easy to start one.
0: Yeah, I saw a figure of ten thousand somewhere. The reason why I'm asking that question is, you know, if we look at the standard models for investment um, and securities, they're based on their claims on future cash flows. Um, this isn't attached to any currency, so crypto doesn't have any cash flows. How how is is this intended to ever make it to to be a kind of fungible currency, or is it always going to exist online? Are ordinary people like you and I going to use cryptocurrency?
2: Um, well, it depends on who you ask about this. Like the true believers would say, that all of these little coins are well—not all. Of them. I don't think. I don't think anybody. There's no true believer who's so true a believer that they think that all of these coins are going to be worth something. Um, but anyway. Uh, People will people will say that the, the that the products that these coins are attached to, a lot of these products are coins are attached to new sort of products, types of crypto banks and lenders and bits and bobs. And so a lot of people will believe in those things and they say, Yeah, this decentralized lending platform is going to be great and this coin that's attached to it, therefore it should have value and that's why you're buying it. And like that's giving them the benefit of the doubt. Mm. But I mean, it seems very, very likely that to me that the reason that people are going on coinbase in their millions all around the world and putting in their savings is not that they believe that some little random lending platform is going to be the future of, of, of micro of small business lending they're doing it because they think that, that they think crypto go, is going up and it's it's speculation
0: yeah it's speculation so um I've seen a lot of criticism about it as well in in, in terms of its capacity to scale up and um, where is their cross-currency sharing capacity do you think that that's 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 something that did they look at it in the future?
2: Um, the scaling thing is interesting. It, it goes back to the first thing I said about crypto, Bitcoin mm. being sort of like, if you visualize it like being a net, um, whereas the alternative way of running these, like a, a, a database is basically to be like a hub and a spoke, you know, with you've got the center is the hub and everything goes through that, right? So if you keep those images in mind, a hub and a spoke are much more efficient ways of getting information around the system.
1: Mm.
2: If you've got a net, which is what a crypto is, it's just like, it's just slow. Uh, and so like Bitcoin, I think there's some, some number like Bitcoin can process like seven transactions per second and like MasterCard can process like, I don't know, like a quarter of a million or something like that. And, and it comes down to their, their basic architecture of, of cryptos. And I think that's been a really big constraint that they have never fully, they've never overcome it. I think it uh, uh, seems to be baked into the very architecture of decentralized currencies that they're inefficient and that's just if either you you can have to choose either sort of centralization or 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 um or efficiency you can't have both.
0: Sean final question very briefly if I can ask you if somebody wants to get in on cryptocurrencies what advice are you going to give them?
2: <laughs> do, do, don't do, do it. You know you know look don't 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 like do, do it by all means do walk in with your eyes open. Look at the long-term charts. Observe how they the extent to which they go up and down. And don't do it with much of your money, because like there are a few people in the world who have enough money to put to take that much risk with with you know with the bulk of their funds.
0: Sean, I think we're okay for this weekend. Anyway, we won't be investing in the bitcoins or uh, the cryptocurrencies. But for now, we'll have to leave it there. That's Sean Keys of the Currency. Sean, thanks very much for joining us today.
2: Thank you. Enjoyed it.
0: Welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock I'm Mandy Johnston Now Mario Draghi is former president of the ECB of course he earned the title of Super Mario uh, for the role that he played in rescuing the Euro and that has given him immense prestige in a European context and also in Italy but in what is a big departure from political norms he resigned not once but twice in the last two weeks the president there in Italy urged him to stay but alas it all came unstuck this week his unity government is not going to continue Continue, and the Italians are now likely to head for the polls in September or October. I'm joined now from Italy by Hugo McCafferty, who is an Irish journalist based there. Hugo, thanks very much for joining us. You're very welcome to the show.
3: Thanks very much, Mandy.
0: Now, President Sergio uh, Mattarella asked Mario Draghi to remain on in a caretaker capacity. So what's what's going to happen next?
3: Uh, well, it looks like snap elections will happen in at the, at the end of September or uh, the start of October. Nothing much will happen in the meantime because, as you well know, uh, Italy goes on, on holidays for the month of August, um, and that includes all the uh, political parties and all the politicians as well. Um, so uh, everything is just sort of on hold until then. Um, it is it's a bit of a shock that this has happened, um, but at the same time, uh, Italy is well used to poli- political crisis, and yeah. if anything, it's 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 more it's the status quo here in this country, and if anything, it's reassuring that we come back to um, what is normality, political infighting.
0: Yeah, there's never any shortage of drama when it comes to uh, Italian politics. But the last 18 months under Mario Draghi has seen a very um, stable environment, if you like. He's delivered uh, a very big package, I think the biggest package in a European context for um, Italy's recovery. He's also managed them through the COVID crisis. So let's go back a bit and see where did it all come undone? Who is to blame for this resignation?
3: Uh, well, uh, I suppose the, the seeds of this are, or go back to even um, before Mary Dragon's arrival. Um, you'll remember that during the pandemic, you had um, a coalition led by the um, Five Star Movement um, during the pandemic. And Giuseppe Conte, as the leader of, the, of that party, did um, he did a really great job, an admirable job of um, steering the country through what was a very, very traumatic time. Um, And then just when the vaccines arrived and it seemed like there was some sort of light at the end of the tunnel, what you had was Renzi orchestrated um, Draghi to be parachuted in as a technocrat and uh, the the Five Star Movement had to sit back along with the other uh, parties and watch as Draghi sort of doled out the instigated reform packages and doled out the the recovery package uh, given by the EU. So you could say that Giuseppe Conte and the, the Five Star Movement have been lying in the long grass mm. all for the, for the opportunity to do something like this. Now, about uh, three or four weeks ago, number two in the Five Star Movement, uh, Luigi Di Maio, who is um, in Minister of the Interior, he left the party and uh, he claimed that he disagreed with Giuseppe Conte's reservations about um, military aid to the Ukraine. Um, but what, what has happened in reality is that the parties that have, particularly the, the anti-establishment parties like the like the Five Star Movement, like Lega, like the Brothers of Italy, and, and the far-right parties, their stock have been um, sort of undermined, have been, has been has been lowered the longer they stay within uh, the coalition, because they're sort of particularly kind of firebrand anti-establishment parties. Um, but the Five Star Movement has really suffered, and I suppose. What you're seeing now is uh, Conte making a move um, and saying, right, well, if he, if he doesn't stop, potentially the dam could burst in terms of support for his party if he doesn't do something something now.
0: Yeah, as you say, within the party, um, they've been divided on the approach to the Ukraine. Um, how do you think that their support is likely to hold up in the forthcoming elections?
3: Uh, according to according to opinion polls, they've they've, they've really um, they've gone from the the most supported party to um, really one of one of the weaker weakest parties. I think they they had um, been voted in with uh, you know a raft of promises um, on things like um univer- or basic universal income, which they haven't delivered on. Now, granted, the pandemic has really played played havoc with their ability to deliver on those. Um, but I think a lot of the protest vote that they had uh, won in in those elections has somehow veered towards the far right parties've mm. seen what the opinion polls would call um call it as the brothers of Italy and uh, the League party um as being among the the biggest the biggest most popular parties in the country at the moment
0: now you mentioned there the reform package, which is underway um in the Italian unity government, and the um, the ability to draw down those EU funds that we talked about, that there, I think there's 200 billion euros destined to go to um, Italy from that package uh, from Europe. How, how does all of this affect that? Can that proceed or is it all held up now until there's a new government formed?
3: Yeah, it will be held up. I mean, that that, that um, recovery package is contingent on certain reforms put in place um, that the EU require and Draghi was was slowly but surely getting those put in place and that's a notoriously difficult thing to do in Italy. So that will be held up um, until those reforms, until there's a new government and until the new government um, enacts those reforms. Um, and that is uh, something that the, the people of Italy um, will want to see that money come, in, come into the economy, they really need it. Hmm. Um, so that will mitigate I think, against any kind of extreme lurches to to the right or far right.
0: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnson. We're talking to Hugo McCafferty, who's an Irish journalist based in Italy, about the Italian political crisis that is ongoing. Um, Hugo, just to look at... Um, Mario Draghi's role uh, outside of Europe um, and the effect that this might have on the wider EU bloc? We've seen this week uh, the European Central Bank raise interest rates by um, half of 1%. Do you think this will have a destabilising effect on the wider bloc? You know, in, a, in that context, you know, he was a stabilising presence, wasn't he?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think um, Draghi is Europe's man in there, and they very much, they very much wanted him in there. Um, Europe won't, won't want to see Italy lurch to the right um, or in you know in a, in an extreme way. Yeah, that could have that that could have, that could have consequences, I suppose. In, in speaking, in looking at broader um, broader European unity, another thing is that uh, the League party and the Brothers of Italy. All have members who are um, re- reportedly very close to Vladimir Putin. Um, Salvini, uh, leader of the League Party himself, has been photographed numerous times of Vladimir Putin. You probably remember the, the photographs of him wearing, you know, wearing Vladimir Putin T-shirts. So uh, that is a worry. That is a worry. Uh, I think uh, Putin himself would would like to see those people in power in Italy, um, because up until now, uh, you know, there's, there's Europe has been. Um, incredibly united against against Russia and against Putin's actions in, in the Ukraine. And Italy as one of the founding members of the EU, very, very important country. Um it, it it could be destabilizing to Europe to see um to see people favorable towards Putin in power at the moment.
0: Yeah, Hugo um Did events take people by surprise this week in Italy? I mean, I know that he resigned last week and the president refused to accept his resignation. he was trying to get unity for that government and, and another commitment from all of the parties to push through these reform agendas. Do you think that, um, this has surprised the public? Looking at the front pages of some of the Italian papers, where they call the behaviour shameful, could could the voters there take it out on the other parties for not agreeing another coalition uh, to to back Mario Draghi and his reform agenda?
3: I don't think it took them by surprise. I think uh, this is. This is Italian politics, and everybody everybody knows. I mean, it's it, it's generally it rolls from crisis to crisis. And um, I think one thing is, is for sure, though, is that Draghi is immensely popular amongst the people, amongst uh, union leaders, amongst you know the so-called first citizens, academics, senators. They all want him to stay, but he just he just he didn't have, um, as he said, the, the um, an environment of of trust. Uh, between all the political parties, um, I wouldn't be surprised if, we, if this is not the last we see mm. of Draghi in politics. Um, I think so, a party like the uh, like the PDS, the centre left party, um, they would give themselves a huge shot in the arm if they were to get him on board um, for these elections. Um, so there's still there's, a, there's quite a bit to run out or quite a bit to play out in the in the in the coming weeks. We'll see. But I don't think anybody's hugely surprised by it. Okay. I think it was more of a surprise that we were able to stay united for Czech uh, for so long yeah yeah
0: yeah. so just turning briefly to two other issues before i let you go hugo one I, i wanted to mention was um earlier this week mario draghi was in algeria to try and agree another gas supply deal for for italy obviously all member states affected by um the announcement by the european commission this week on gas what's the situation about energy security in italy how how does that country fare where do you get your energy from
3: yeah, Italy has uh, left itself quite open uh, to the current situation. So, but but Draghi has done very well, um, and he has managed to secure supplies from Turkey, from Libya, and now from Algeria as well. Um, but Italy has no Italy. Italy does need to work on more energy autonomy because they don't have um, they don't have any nuclear because the country or the people are there was a number of referenda back in the eighties and people voted. Overwhelmingly against it, and I think they're right because it's a um, it's a seismic country with a lot of um, of, you know a lot of geological or kind of um, you know it's 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 uh, susceptible to earthquakes and volcanoes Mm. and that kind of thing. Um, So Italy is quite um, quite dependent on Russian gas, um, but it is it is making moves now to um, to diversify and I think sustainable energy. Sources need to be a big part of that.
0: Okay, and finally, Hugo, we've seen huge weather events across Europe this week. Um, where are you based in Italy, and, and how was Italy affected?
3: Yeah, I'm up in um, in the north of Italy, uh, which is which has been quite badly affected. But I'm around the Lake Como area, where where we're doing okay. We've had some we've had some recent rain, um, and of course, we have the lakes here. So, um, but the, the the high temperatures. Are not as bad as they are in France or Spain. We haven't seen the huge wildfires yet. Um, but the problem here is drought for sure. Uh, we had basically no, no rain during the winter months and then we had some in the spring and then we just went straight into heat waves in the summer. So Italian agriculture is going to be severely affected. Um, we're looking at outputs down at least by 30% and that is a concern. and the that EU recovery package mm. uh, will be sorely needed by those by those uh, farmers come to the end of the season.
0: Well, certainly interesting times uh, ahead for you, Hugo. And we, um, we'll be back to you before those elections, I'm sure. That's the end of uh, Mario Draghi for now anyway. According to Hugo, we might see him back again. That's democracy in action. He couldn't get the support that he wanted. But for now, we'll have to leave that there. Hugo, thank you very much for joining us today and thank you for your insights. Thank you. This is Mandy Johnston with you on Newstalks Taking Stock. Coming up after the break, a scorching week across Europe as the EU outlines gas rationing plans and the energy crisis hits boiling point. This is Mandy Johnston with you on Newstalk's Taking Stock. Now, this week, in an attempt to prepare for what is likely to be a complete cutoff of Russian gas, the European Commission produced a new plan which is designed to reduce gas consumption across Europe. And it happened in the same week that the climate crisis arrived literally on the doorsteps of thousands and thousands of homes across Europe and in the UK to discuss this week's weather events and the energy crisis, we're joined now by Michael Grubbs, who's Professor of Energy and Climate Change at UCL in London. Professor, you're very welcome to Taking Stock. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Mary.
0: Now, um, Ursula van der Leyen, uh, alluded to the fact that we're likely to see a complete halt of Russian gas but even in the absence of that the lack of supply alone has already affected inflation the economies right across Europe and the UK affected severely energy security i just wonder telling us to turn down the heat was hardly a convincing emergency response from the u from the eu for me what did you make of the the plans published the paper pu- published by the eu uh, this week professor
1: well the eu is in a difficult position um a Germany has been almost 30% uh, dependent upon Russian gas, some of the uh, East European countries even more, and uh, it takes time to try and replace those kind of supplies. So the European Commission really is scrambling for options. Um, It's fortunate in one sense that now uh, summer, obviously, is the low point of gas demand. On the other hand, you know, ga- Europe does have substantial capacity for gas storage. It's struggling to refill that, and it needs to refill that to, to, to weather the winter, the coming winter. Yeah. So they're really trying to do everything they can to clamp down on, on gas demand. Um Obviously, that is going to involve the short-term measures uh, for both industry and household to try and minimise their energy use where it depends on gas, uh, accelerating where things can be done, energy efficiency measures. But that's, you know, almost by definition, it's a kind of it's it's a it's an emergency where they should have started the solution or done more uh, a decade. Or more ago, because it takes quite a long time, but they are ramping up those measures. Um, and finally, bringing in alternate supplies. So uh, Italy uh, in particular, and the southern you know, Mediterranean countries, are trying to accelerate and expand imports of gas from North Africa. Uh, and there's likely to be at least two or three new arrangements for liquefied natural gas coming in. Uh, Final thing, of course, is accelerating uh, renewables where that can be done. But again, some solar, some onshore wind you can do quickly, providing the the constraints aren't too bad. Um, Some of the other bigger renewables do take longer. So the plan, I think, is almost unavoidably a a bit of a hodgepodge. I think the uh, commission is also... It's warning gas supplies could be cut off because they're trying to blunt the threat of that as a, as a weapon. Mm. I think they're hoping it won't really come to the crunch because, you know, Russia does need gas export revenues. But we shall see. And they're quite rightly not wanting to take that gamble.
0: Yeah, I, I, I agree with you uh, on that, Professor. I think there's a large amount of conditioning people to prepare them in the summer months for what might happen in the winter. And these reduction plans are geared largely towards industries rather than consumers at the moment, but that obviously may change. Um, I just want to talk to you a little bit about the status of the plan itself. Is it binding? What do you think about that notion of a voluntary 15% reduction by member states? One, is that like or is it even possible do you think
1: it's really hard to judge I think it will vary significantly by member states mm. um, some will in effect have a few more options than others but but the difficulty of, of asking industry to cut back is is that is you know potentially losing losing industrial output mm. and member states uh, are going to have a very difficult time as to whether how they persuade or or enforce their industries to do that. So, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. and then when you look at the benefits uh, of reducing consumption, obviously from an in an EU context, you're you're reducing the amount of energy you use, but what effect would that reduction have for a country like ours like Ireland are not actually connected to the grid so in a bigger context does it make any difference or is this just a part of get ready there's going to be uh, rationing
1: so uh, i mean i've not looked at the details of the plan nation by nation and the extent of like conditioning flexibility according to circumstances Clearly, you're right. It, 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 in, in a way, neither the UK nor Ireland have any significant dependence upon Russian gas per se. On the other hand, it is also true that if Russia does cut off supplies, uh, because Russia itself, had, it, it can do a bit of shuffling around to mm. other countries it exports too, but it, it's self-constrained by the pipelines. So it's not like... It's going to dump all of that other all of that gas still on the market. So it will reduce global supplies and that and, and gas in economic terms, it's not very elastic. It doesn't respond easily or quickly to price. So you cut supply, the price can shoot up a lot.
0: Mm.
1: And, and I think that is a concern, obviously for a country like Ireland and the UK. And so yeah, absolutely, I think it's a general signal to the European Union countries. Get ready. This could be tough. There may have to be some form of rationing. Uh, And if it's not, it's going to every likelihood this coming winter will be just as expensive or more.
0: Now, you're, you're somebody who looks on a daily basis at energy and climate change together yeah. in their totality, which I think is the only way that you can look at either of those now. Um, when it comes to politicians making decisions about whether we keep our standards of living uh, and benchmark that or juxtapose that against saving the planet in the height of this climate crisis, the EU short term solution is to advocate the use of nuclear energy and coal. How does this square with their ambitious Green Deals?
1: So, um, I mean, nuclear is kind of irrelevant. Uh, well, sorry, nuclear output from existing plants is not irrelevant, but it's paradoxical because a number of the nuclear plants struggle in very hot conditions, such as we've seen. So, we've seen significant turn down of the nuclear plants. Um, and, and it does stress some of, some of the, the, the reactor operations. So, um, that's. But you know they'll be using the nuclear plants, existing nuclear plants, as much as they can. Uh, Germany has signaled it's not planning to uh, slow down it, its phase out of nuclear.
0: Yeah, Germany, um, Germany are interesting in that respect because they have, and um, they're going back on their policy to reduce nuclear. They're also committing to uh, build large LNG terminals. Um, you've got countries like the UK. Um, you're issuing new exploration licenses so there's quite a yeah, turn yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's, and, and I mean Germany have, have a green partnership in the government so there's quite, a, there's quite a bit of turnaround on, on previous commitments uh, that governments have made it's an extraordinary so, situation
1: So I, I mean if we step back a second what we've got to realise is we're facing two crises two deeply intersecting crises because energy is also at the heart of the climate change crisis And there is the old saying of never waste a serious crisis. So I think strategically the EU and the European Commission are underlining this shows the risks of dependence upon fossil fuels and the need to accelerate the the low carbon transition. In the short run obviously, that throws up tensions because you can't build a low-carbon economy overnight at all. Um, So they're dealing with the existing capital stock, and therefore they're faced with a challenge in some cases, particularly for the countries where there's still a significant coal capacity, as to whether they're going to basically tell industry to shut down more in the short run or we're going to fire up some of the coal plants on the grounds that this is a, a national security.
0: Hmm.
1: Now, the, sorry, the other thing I didn't mention is, you know, on the timescale of the energy crisis, new nuclear is frankly irrelevant. We, we know it takes a decade to build a new nuclear power station. Um, different countries, different member states have very different views on whether or not it makes sense, whether they are willing to, you know, build more nuclear or not. Nuclear itself does have problems about its flexibility if you've got loads of renewables as well. No, and, and it, and it, it really. and I,
0: I accept it doesn't change the short term solutions, but it does give you um an insight into a change of thinking on the medium term solutions for security of supply. I wanted to yeah. I wanted to pick you, Professor, on, on that issue of, of transitioning um into a lower carbon society and, and delivering low carbon energies because I often think that what people miss in this transition is the word transition. It's not teleporting. We're not at a stage where Mm. renewables can replace the fossil fuels. So um, I suppose what, what I'm asking here is, Is the political will still there to kind of drive that change or do you think that transition will actually come from within the industry Like I I hear on, I listen to a lot of UK radio as well and I hear a lot of advertising by Shell and, and various different companies who are now presenting themselves as sort of green energy companies. So do you think that it's actually, you know, industry that will drive this change, this transition?
1: Uh, a, a short answer would be yes, and a longer one would probably get me to comment on the UK political situation. Uh, it's been kind of entertaining, to be honest. This the having the heatwave crisis uh, as as unambiguously this is what climate this is climate change, and it's only going to get worse until we take much more radical action. Um, at the same time as the Tory leadership uh, contest, because Frankly, it was a bit of a motley crew, to say the least, in terms of their commitment on climate change. Uh, There was some very good footwork by some of the Conservative Environmental Network, which did get most of the leadership contenders to uh, at least say they wouldn't try and reverse the net zero commitment. But, you know, I I think that does speak to your point. It wasn't at all obvious that... Any or many of the leadership contenders really were very serious about closing the gap between the sort of stated ambition and actual delivery. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I think I think in a way, in that sense, the the heat crisis. I mean, you know, Britain over forty degrees, mm-hmm. a degree degree and a half higher than anything we've ever seen. It's like you know, if that's not a wake up call, and that was noticed, that put all of the Tory leadership. Uh, candidates in the spotlight, and I think particularly Rishi Sunak was absolutely clear and I think pretty convincing about how seriously he takes. This. You know, politics is complex, right? Yeah. Politics, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What I think we come back to is when, if you like, more climate sceptical, lukewarm politicians start to say "Well, you know, da, da da da," we find his business says, "Come on, we need to know where we're going here." There are commitments in place. We want to see the delivery so that we can invest in the low carbon solution and have a planned transition.
0: Yeah. If you're just joining us, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking to Professor Michael Grubbs, Professor of Energy and Climate at UCL in London, about the developments last week at the European Commission on Energy and the extreme weather conditions in the UK and across Europe. I just want to focus a little bit more uh, Professor, if I may, on what the UK is doing to provide itself with energy security and I ask that question because you will be aware that the UK currently provides Ireland with 70% of our gas. So (laughs) we're extremely interested in what happens there. UK is a net importer of gas itself. But if the UK supply were to be compromised in any way, how secure do you think our supply might be?
1: That is a pretty tough question. Uh, And I, so first of all, I think think because the UK is not directly dependent upon Russian gas, but it is dependent upon, for example, significant flows, substantial flows from Norway as well as UK and Sea Basin, it's unlikely but not impossible that UK would find itself literally without a supply of gas uh what is entirely possible is is it, it it's very expensive but but if there were an actual shortage of supply to be blunt i don't know the legal terms entirely of the agreements between uk and ireland but you know the politics could get quite unpleasant yeah and, and- uh, i hope that we won't get there mm. Uh, and um, to be honest, I, I, I speak with some hesitancy because I don't know the details of those uh, ar- arrangements, you know, legal, commercial. Uh, but clearly, you know, the politics are under strain also because of the border issue. The last thing we really need is something which is going to basically expect yeah, but- a brand new Tory leader. I mean, the politics of a brand new Tory leader saying, you know, Sorry, British people, uh, you're not going to have gas to keep warm, but but we're exporting.
0: Yeah, well, um, you know, we we would have to ask that question given what we've seen on the Northern Ireland Protocol and the willingness of a previous mm-hmm. uh, prime minister to to abandon that. And
1: um, just to, yeah, I think in the famous phrase, I could not possibly comment. Yeah, yeah, okay, fair
0: enough. So in terms of taking imported gas from Europe we're going to have to use LNG. We don't have an LNG terminal in Ireland. How long does one of those take to build?
1: Hmm. So uh, it would take a good many years to build a whole new LNG terminal. But there are floating LNG terminals. Of course, they're in rather high demand at the moment. Uh, And and I don't know either uh, the, the price or the wait time. But I mean, I think in principle... Some of those floating LNG terminals have have swung into action at just a few months' notice. Obviously, there there are you know where where you hook into the national gas grid, uh, gas grid issues, but that that would be the obvious option. Yeah, um, constructing a pipeline from say from. You know, again, those things just can't happen over the space of a year or two. Uh, to, to my mind, looking at it, though strategically, um, the one impact of Brexit is it made Ireland very conscious that you were dependent upon us for electricity trade as well. Uh, I don't know exactly where things stand, but Ireland has had a very active discussion about building a, a cable, an electricity cable to France. Which, frankly, in your circumstances, probably makes a lot of sense, and, and it can be done in a few years. I think in, we we actually had a much longer line uh, power connector from Norway to the UK, which took about five years from initiation to commissioning last year, uh, and I'm sure that could be accelerated, but you know, not done within a year, I think.
0: Professor, unfortunately, we didn't get time to focus on the climate element of this discussion today. We will we will revisit it on another occasion. We
1: should revisit. I think that uh, some countries are going to put a lot of money into fossil fuel projects; they will regret. But we can come back to that topic another time.
0: We can indeed, but for now we'll have to leave it there. Uh, That's Professor Michael Grubbs of UCL in London. Professor, thank you very much for giving us your very valuable insights today.
1: All right. Thank you very much.
0: But that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Now, while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we are, of course, available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. My thanks to all of today's guests and to producer John Fardy with Jojo Cardoso on sound. If you want to get in contact with the show, you can email us on takingstock at newstalk.com. So for now, for me, Mandy Johnston, that was Taking Stock. Enjoy the rest of your day and thanks for listening.